Welcome to The Sustainable Life. I'm here with Conrad Ruiz. You are a, a, a longtime friend that we've met through leadership and entrepreneurship, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. You are now the, about to be the newest host in the This Sustainable Life family. For people who don't know, I train the hosts in the Spodic Method and podcasting. You've, you've podcasted before, but the training goes like this. I do the Spodic Method with that person, with a new person, so that they get the feel for it. I also describe the theory and stuff like that. And then they do it with me. And, and each time we do it, it's, that's two conversations. So I lead them to share a value of theirs. They share the value. Then we meet again. And we, how did the commitment go? Then they do it with me. Josh, what's a, what does the environment mean to you? Do you care to make a commitment for it? And I do it. And then we meet. That would be the fourth time. That's now. That's this conversation right now. Normally, the next thing is they do their first episode. And they do this product with me, with me a second time with me being recorded. And that's often the first episode on another branch's podcast. I've had this done with me many times, asked, what's the environment mean to you? Being invited at my option to think of something I can do to act on it. And it's always a meaningful experience. A lot of people think, Josh, you're so extreme. You already do so much. But to me, I'm so far from sustainable that I like doing more and more things because it connects me more and more with nature. So this last one that we did, it really hit me. I mean, they all hit me, but this one I wanted to record. So I propose, I wrote Conrad and said, do you mind if we record this next episode or the, this, this, this training episode, this training session, because I, I want to get stuff out and I think it'll be useful for my audiences. I hope I didn't take too long to explain this, but I propose, let's start by saying a bit of your background because no one's heard of you or uh, they haven't heard of you much. How'd you happen to decide to do this podcast and then, you know, to do your own branch of it, what's your audience and who'd you pick? And then we'll get into what brought me to what I want to share so much or explore okay. so much. Sure. I'll try to be brief about where I'm coming from. I am originally from Miami, Florida. I am a former biomedical engineer by study. I endeavored to, I guess, really focus my time and life around health, medicine, my particular backstory with my father being basically 70 years older than me has always been a kind of cornerstone for me to talk about. But kind of taking that into the context of how I found myself specifically here, as you pointed out, Josh, I fell into the world of entrepreneurship and by that token leadership. One of the things that I came to recognize in my sort of principle around awareness and talking about how people, I think, should manage their time to focus on what truly matters. I, I strongly believe in that the environment is something that we need to spend more time on and that we need to invest towards its recovery due to everything that's going on. But when you and I got the chance to speak, I ended up walking away with a much more powerful perspective and approach to talking about the environment, not just to talk about it with others, but to talk about it with myself. Through our conversations, um, you've led me to understand how I want to approach the time and task of saving the planet, if we're going to call it that. Through that, I mean, I ended up doing a number of things, right? From the point of picking up trash that I normally would otherwise not look at or, or pay mind to, to the more recent endeavors of essentially promoting my own time of being, I don't want to just call it zero waste, Shopping, I mean, that's certainly the, the sort of goal that I'm going towards, but it's 
just less plastic for now, but more, more even to that, I walk to the grocery store every day. Now I don't even drive. The only vehicle I do have is a motorcycle. And so there's, there's something to be said of that, but I'm, I'm graced to be able to walk to the store, pick up food, put it all in as, as much reusable packaging as humanly possible. Endeavor to, from that standpoint, really be mindful of minimizing, if not eliminating all food waste. So to that end, sort of the second caliber of my design of care has been around making sure that of all the food that I eat, none of it goes to waste. The rest of it gets composted. I don't want to touch the trash can by the end of every day. That all in a nutshell has, as much as my background has been about me, my health, my wellness, and that whole respect through the world of entrepreneurship, through becoming more aware about what matters, I've really transitioned into thinking beyond just what time means to me, I, to the question you love to ask, like to what the environment means to me, how I want to go about endeavoring my time from there. When you talk about the transition that came through our relationship, are you talking about from the very beginning or specifically from when we started working, doing the podcast training? I think from the very beginning, we had already been, you had already instilled in me a lot of thoughtfulness about this, this problem that I've taken with me and have now it, part of it, I think is what really excited me when you started getting into the, the podcast training side of it. So like, Oh, I'm going to be able to do this with others. Like in the way that you do it. Cause I, I tried emulating it at times and it was, I was terrible. Pre-training. Yeah. Pre-training. Yeah. Terrible. Now you mentioned also what time means to you. And I'm going to refer to something that the listeners haven't been privy to, but tell me if I remember this right, that you were concerned about working on the environment. If that took away from your time and attention on other things mm-hmm. that would work against you. Yeah, it would feel to me uh, a cause of anxiety or a cause of distress rather than being something of value. I think there's something to be said about why I feel I felt that way for a good amount of time. That's a way I think a lot of the people in my particular space feel when it comes to their endeavors to be an entrepreneur. Um, They just feel like anything that's not endeavored towards their business is a detriment and therefore a stress. So if you're working on this now, that means either you've stopped being an entrepreneur or you've switched this view that you don't view it as a distraction or getting in the way. Correct. With more emphasis, definitely being on the latter. <laughs> still an entrepreneur. <laughs> still an entrepreneur. So do I read you right that this is augmenting your being an entrepreneur? It uplevels the entire framework behind why I would get up in the morning. So working on the environment is helping you be an entrepreneur more when you used to think it would be a distraction. And that's not to say because my entrepreneurship endeavors are directly associated with the environment. That is not at all what I'm kind of associating or alluding to. I, I could be, in fact, the, the nature of my work, granted, I could tangentially reconnect it to the environment in ways. It's not a direct impact. Then I think you're going to have to do a lot of solo episodes on your podcast to unpack that for people to get why, because I think there's a lot of people out there, you know, I invite you at your option to think of something you did actually, oh, but I'm already doing all these other things. I'm already doing stuff. I can't, you know, there's only so many things I can do. Then they figure it out and they're like, oh, I can, I've been meaning to do this. This is actually going to help me. If that's something you faced head on, I think you sharing that will be helpful for a lot of people. I'll make sure to organize that, that explanation when I'm ready. All right. Now I propose switching to the second half of the, of the Spodic method, which this is going to be your first time doing it. So we'll all be supportive because you haven't done it before. Because it's not formal, I might not go off on tangents, but you know, explore because it was really interesting what happened. 
So are you game for starting the second conversation? I'm ready. Okay. Josh would love to recall what it was that we spoke about last time in terms of what the environment meant to you and what you were up to. Since I get this asked me a lot, because I do this exercise with lots of people, you know, some people know me for my sledding hill, but I, I, there's lots of ways that I connect with the environment. And one of the things that I talked about was how, when I eat food that I cook myself, I find a euphoria, it's subtle, but it feels really good. And if I'm distracted, I don't notice it. It's something that I've, if you listen to my episode with, I think either Joel Furman, Dr. Joel Furman or Dr. Michael Greger, I asked them one of them is, do people know about this? this is an effect that's documented. It's really interesting to me, this euphoria. So I committed to, this was early January. So for the rest of the month of January, we're now February 1st. I said that I would at least two meals a day have, what I remember was to have no screens on. And what I ended up doing was not having the screen on for any meal. So all three meals of, of a day. I would allow, listen to podcasts so with the screen off. That was my commitment was to go for the rest of January, which is I think three and a half weeks at that point or three weeks of only eating without a screen on. Okay. How did you feel about that? About the commitment or? Yeah. What, what did it ultimately, what did it ultimately create for you, that experience? Immediately that day, I mean, the next meal that I ate, I had the screen off. And then I thought, you know, let's go for three meals a day. And then I thought, what happened was I started feeling craving. I started, like, at first I thought, all right, this is just going to be like kind of a mechanical task. But then I started feeling addicted. I started realizing as I'm prepping my meal, as I'm, you know, putting the food on, in the bowl and chopping up the toppings and putting them on top and getting ready to eat, my thoughts were like time to get in front of the computer because I've been sitting in front of the computer eating for so long. And if I go way back a couple of years ago, I went, I think like three or six months on a news diet, you know, not reading any news. And that was kind of hard to get into. But I remember at the end of it, when I started reading the news again, I was like, I didn't miss anything. And I thought, okay, I've done it before. I'll just do it again. The feeling of when I wanted to, when I was going to eat, there was a feeling inside me that said, go in front of the computer, turn on the computer and, you know, check Reddit, check Twitter, whatever, the social stuff. And then I'll say, oh, I'm not going to do that. But it, the feeling was so seductive and so smooth. I started feeling all these feelings that I casually talk about how we're addicted to the, the, what fossil fuels bring us. But I forgot the feeling of it. I was describing it to someone, you know, they, on the cartoons, they have like angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. That's not accurate enough because that's something external. It was inside me, this feeling of it's so right. I felt like if I don't go in front of the computer, I'll be wasting my time. I could do something while I'm eating. Within me, there was something saying, just do it. It's better. It's good to do what consciously, when I was calm and not, not just about to eat, I felt like not doing. I decided not to do. I could look back at my history of watching a little bit more and a little bit more over the course of several months, maybe years, I haven't really kept track, to where I developed a dependence. It felt like it was right. And it felt like it was good. It felt warm and comfortable. I was like, this is addiction. 
And I could see it happening. And I, I think about when I read about people who were like, one day I woke up and I was like 200 pounds overweight. I'm like, how can you just wake up and find yourself 200 pounds overweight? You see it all along the way. It was so slippery and seductive. As I started paying more and more attention to it, I thought maybe paying attention would decrease it, but it didn't. It, it was still there. And it's still there all the time. Not, I mean, it's less and less, the withdrawal is going away. And I don't want to say that this is physically comparable to someone on fentanyl or, or meth, but I don't want to. But- Hence why you brought it up. Like it's, it's a very subtle type of addiction. It's so much easier just to, there's a part of me saying, I can recognize that the entire time that this was happening of me just saying, here are a couple of feelings. Oh, I'll just read really quick. I'll just a real quick glance. But I could hear inside myself a voice also saying, you know that if you go on for a minute or two, you'll find an article that will lead you to another article and you'll be on for a long time. And I knew inside of me saying, yeah, but I'll just say that it's only for five minutes. And then what happens, it will be an accident. And I knew that what I was doing, I knew that I was stepping deeper into it. I also then would look at this is our culture. American global culture is designed around, I mean, the biggest companies in the world right now, or at least the fastest growing over the past several years, if we look at the FANG companies, uh, Facebook, Meta, Google, Netflix, Alphabet, you know, what, what are the, Amazon, Twitter, they're all designed, but also um, all the doof companies, companies that sell what other people call fast food and junk food, things like that. It's all designed to make you feel, to tap into the part of your, there's a part of us that when we get this feeling of, oh yeah, that's what I wanted, give me more. Companies find out how to tap into that. And that's like the, a major part of our economy, tapping into that. People are there at home being like, oh, that's dopamine. Oh, yeah, but call, giving a scientific name is, I think distances ourselves from the actual feeling, which is I think more important. So we, we live in a world in which people feel it's good to do something that they know is the opposite of what they want. I had on my podcast, Sam Quinones, who wrote a book about five years ago called Sleep Dreamland, which is about America's opiate problem. Then he just came out with a book a couple months ago, I think in November, The Least of Us, which is about meth and fentanyl. I asked him about the switch over into fentanyl. And I said, do you know if the feeling of fentanyl, do people like it? And he said, fentanyl, apparently you drop into the feeling faster than with heroin and then you pop back out faster also. Apparently for medicine, for their medical uses for this stuff. So if you're an anesthesiologist, you like that because it gives you finer control over how deep someone is and how quickly they're in or out. If you're a casual user, it sucks. You pop out and you're like, ah, that's, it's abrupt. You're not easily let out. For the experience, it's worse, but for the sales, it's better because people then want to take more. The addiction of feeling constantly unsatisfied and always trying to recapture that sense of satisfaction that you were so given. That's for addiction in general. Comparing meth and fentanyl, I'm sorry, comparing fentanyl and, and heroin, it's the abruptness. Comparing the two, apparently, subjectively, it's a worse experience with fentanyl, but it increases sales. Sound like Facebook? It's giving people worse experiences of life. Same with, I mean, people don't get me when I talk about flying, about how my not flying has led me to, like, I don't want to fly. Even if it didn't pollute, that's like one issue is the pollution. It tears communities apart. 
that feeling of, oh, but this is good. This is right. I think it's coming from this feeling. I, like when people live far from families and they fly to go see their family. Well, let's take an easier case. If they fly to go see some site somewhere, some wonder of nature, they want to fly to see the Amazon. Well, there's nature everywhere. I think that the, that feeling of, that I feel of sitting down in front of a computer while I eat, that warm feeling of it's right. I think maybe, of course, there's a joy. There's something to be seen in seeing raw nature so beautiful. But if where you live, you don't know anything about the trees and the birds that are around you, there's nature. You can get that closer to home. I think a lot of it is that feeling of that warm, right feeling of the getting on the plane, of the going somewhere. I think that the, the advertising, the travel business advertises a lot. People don't need to travel so much as they do. It's driving that craving, that feeling of this is right. And then when they talk about it, they say, oh, how can you be a good citizen if you don't go and see all these different cultures and so forth? But they're not visiting their own culture. I talk about that a lot with food. People go around the world to get foods that they don't get at home. But in New York City right now, turnips are in season. I don't see anyone buying turnips. If the goal is really to try something that you don't normally get, you can go to the farmer's market and buy a turnip, save yourself thousands of dollars, months of extra work, and tons of pollution, and get something that is a new cuisine to you. But they don't want to do that because that doesn't give the turnip isn't known for giving the feeling of warm. That's right. Airplanes do. And I think people have that feeling inside them of, I shouldn't be doing this, but it feels so right. It feels so good. And the more that we do it and the more we reinforce to each other, because we all, if we all feel it, we all know that we feel it. We all want to silence that because it, it makes it hard to sleep at night. It makes us uncomfortable. It twists us up inside. The more that we reinforce it with each other, the more a culture of addiction, giving in complacency. See, seduction isn't the right word of this like giving in of acceptance of not being true to ourselves, allowing ourselves to be seduced, to allow ourselves to get addicted and to tell ourselves that we're not addicted. It's actually good what we're doing. The masking of an unhealthy behavior as a healthy one. I think what I've really captured from this particular bit, Josh, was the, I love the meta-analysis that you dive into. You really express that there is the layers to you and you're sort of looking at it. I, I think everyone tries to sort of put dimensions to it to kind of get perspective in, in a literal sense where you say, this is me eating food without distraction. This is the me behind that that's saying, just get a little bit of it, you know, just, just do a little bit of distraction. It'll be fine. There's the layer behind you that's going, this is going to be a bad idea. It's going to be a terrible experience. And now you're sort of the compendium of all of those layers saying, well, what's the ultimate outcome I want to your respect of, of attention and awareness. You're really trying to answer the problem from the perspective of, well, I don't want to be a slave to this. I ultimately don't want to be an, an addict to the first layer that you just described of, of thinking. And I think a lot of people may or may not feel like they have the time or are attending enough. And I see a lot of this discussed in like many, many habit books mm -hmm. where they say, you have a habit you don't want to do. You've got, you've got an unhealthy behavior that you're performing. Okay. Well, we need to sort of look at the layers of thinking that are going on there because you really need to get into that second layer of thinking, of looking at the thinking that you're doing and understand that a little bit more definitively. And then comes all these tricks, all these designs, but 
there is a different, there's a different trick to changing the habit or perspective around flying, around traveling, around, I feel like there's something different between what people try to do with eating healthier, knowing what's going on there and traveling less, maybe, if that makes sense. There's, there's sort of a different perspective, I think, that's going on. I think it's very hard to argue that fast food is healthy. But I think for some reason, people are trying to have a, are having a hard time arguing with the with themselves that I guess we'll call it fast travel is healthy. Yeah, they don't say that. No one says that doof. I think almost no one says that doof is healthy, but they'll figure out a way to say it's good in some way. Because people are constantly telling me, Josh, you don't understand what it's like for single mom and food does. It doesn't have time, doesn't have chicken fillet bellies with more with a dollar spent at McDonald's than at a farmer's market, which is wrong. If you look up, you can find that you can get vegetables cheaper. But people will say that. What they're really acting on is this feeling of, but I want it, but it's good. And they're voicing it. You had a model of dimensions. To me, the model is more. I think of it as, as our brain has different parts that probably evolved at different times and for, to solve different problems. So one part is our consciousness. And I think all this, when I was saying to myself over the, over the course of months and years, oh, I'm just going to read for like five minutes, knowing that I was going to read for two hours. That was conscious. I would like to say that it was subconscious or unconscious, but it's not. It is conscious. We know that we're doing it. And that makes it harder for people to face because they, they don't want to admit to anyone, including themselves. I don't want to admit to anyone, including myself, that I was choosing to do something against my, another part of my mind. So there's one part is like the craving, wants that feeling of good, wants that feeling of more of that reward, which other people call dopamine, but I don't want to use the scientific terms. I want to, I can sense that feeling. And I think it's better and more useful to connect with the actual physical sense that I can sense. Then another part of my mind is saying, Josh, you know that that's not going to make your life better, that you're going to regret it afterward and you're going to have to bury it and you're going to have to bury this thought that you're thinking also. And I'm like, ah, let's see what's <laughs> going on. I'll, you know, I'll tell myself that it'll be for five minutes again. And then I know that later I'll think, oh, whatever. So to me, it's, it's different parts of the mind. The part that the, of the mind that, that gets all that reward, I'm reinforcing and, and, and developing the deeper neural pathways, this deeper sense of reward and the, the habits set in and the ties, the strands of the rope get stronger and stronger and I get bound more and more, which means I have to tell myself, it gets easier to tell myself the lies, sweeter, harder to resist. And I feel like, oh, it's just normal. Our culture is doing that at another level, not with neurons binding, but cultural norms forming. It's so slippery and smooth, pervasive. It's our culture. We didn't have the methods to do it before. I think the, the smartest minds of our generations are designing, gamifying, what can we do to heighten this, to do more of this and more of this? They're profiting from it. So I, I, I kind of started exploring this with other people before this call, but I, I didn't want to get too much into it because I wanted to explore it. I was surprised at how the magnitude of it, the depth wasn't like, I don't think I'm on par with a heroin user who's been using heroin for a long time. It's possible. I doubt it. I don't think it's like someone who's been eating doof for a long time, or sorry, consuming doof for a long time. 
but I think it's, there's a qualitative similarity, if not quantitative. There's a book I read a while ago, Fit to Fat to Fit, about some fitness trainer who's helping people lose weight, who lose, who, people who are over fat to lose their fat and probably to gain muscle. And he would tell them what to do. And they were like, oh, you don't understand. So finally decides, all right, I'm gonna, he went for, what was it? You're nodding yes. So I think you read it maybe a month. He said he was going to get up to like a certain weight and he allowed himself to consume whatever he wanted to get there. Then when he got there, he was changed. He was a different person. It wasn't just like, okay, decide to switch. And I guess that led him to understand them differently or more. So I was reminded of that. Eating food without a screen on, when I want to sit in front of the computer, I think I'm going to waste time if I don't, because I could eat and do something else. If I eat and just look out the window, my mental activity is higher. I'm actually doing more mentally, not less. It's actually quieting my mind. It, it, like that scene in the Matrix when uh, they're turning Morpheus's brain into the sine waves just before the helicopter scene. It's like that. Boredom is not nothing to do. It's actually mental activity of like, let's do something, let's do something, let's do something. That's what I was quieting. The more interesting part of me, I had it all backward because it felt so good to get an upvote or to express outrage. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. It's so devious. Does it make sense that just by being more conscious of the greater value that we can get through what you're describing, through what you're experiencing? I mean, I think maybe to the, to the ends in which the guy from Fit to Fat to Fit went to really empathize, but also understand he had the perspective of what it was like to experience a greater level of fulfillment, satisfaction, a healthier high, if you will, to equate that maybe on a, on a productive level in terms of, well, my impact has been so much greater. My, as a result of my increased mental health, like I'm just able to produce so much more qualitatively for whatever that purpose may be. In his case, it was, I'm able to, to just serve better in, in the operation of helping, pe- helping more people get fit. I feel like the, the sort of connection that we're trying to make is to say, if you just try it, I literally had a call earlier where this similar coach trainer was saying, look, if you just try this, no risk to you. If you don't see the value of it, if you like it, you keep doing it. If not, you go back to what you were doing. It could work. I think there's something more, more simple and more effective is I think what, what the guy who wrote that book, I forget his name, what he was able to do is empathize with someone. And I think people can use that. And so part of me was thinking, see, I think I can say to people when they say that they want to stick with some addiction of theirs, doof or flying or now, see, if I say flying, they're going to say, but I do want to see my family. I think that when they go to see their family, even when they go to see someone that they deeply love, that there's part of it is that they do want to see a loved one. But I think more than they would like to accept is they want the novelty of that, that feeling. If they really wanted to spend more time with that person, they would live with them. They'd live closer. Now I've noticed, perhaps I'm unique in this, but sometimes when I spend time with my parents, whom I love, they're really, they're annoying. Like I want to get away from them. I don't think people want to spend, I think people, a lot of of when they want to go see someone distant is this feeling of novelty, this feeling of, of this feeling I'm talking about, of exploring the world. Like, oh, I want to go explore the world. And yet there's McDonald's all over the place. 
they're not exploring the world. They're thinking that they are, and they want to be reassured of home. So they go all around the world, consuming doof, telling themselves that they're going new places. And then they, they, they say, I want to try different cuisines. And all the cuisines here are pretty salt, sugar, fat added, Americanized. Anyway, so I think that I can say to people, I know the feeling of addiction too, because I've been addicted. But I think they're going to say, oh, you went for a little while without reading Reddit. That's, that's not really that much of an addiction. Although, I mean, as we all have read, kids commit suicide over social media stuff. So it's, they're really digging themselves deep into holes of emotional want. In order There's to- clearly, uh, for them, it's a very, not to say that it's a very shallow pit, but yes, like there's a lot left in wanting there. And by the design of the internet, it seems to be pretty devastating. I wouldn't be able to empathize with that personally. I wouldn't understand it. I think you would. I mean, I can they're choosing this short-term feeling of that yeah, this feels right, even though they know that it's going to make them feel bad. To the ends that that leads them towards this devastation of health, of mental health, that I don't know. Yeah, it's really easy to choose. It's the same thing with heroin. I know that I shouldn't do this. It's gonna, I'm only going to want more, but you know what? Because I was constantly telling myself, I'm only going to watch for like five minutes. They're like, oh, I'm only going to take a little hit. I'm only going to do... It feels like I'm just going to sneak this in. No one will notice. It's so seductive. That can easily override, but I know I'm going to feel bad about it later. And the depth of how bad you feel later, once you're in, you just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, you can. Your explanation of like the sort of resolution process that people go through at each iteration of the next hit is painfully accurate, I would we say. We all know it. I mean, yeah. our society is built on it now. That's why, I mean, look at all these different things in terms of the environment. I think everybody knows the carbon credits offsets are backward. They produce more and plastic recycling. Who wants it? Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola like every year pledges to reduce and every year they have to pledge again because they don't do anything. We all know that they're lying. The people who buy their stuff are like, Great, good, now buy more. They know it. We all know it. Everyone knows it. Take a so-called renewable energy source. They all require fossil fuels. All of them, they're not renewable. They're not sustainable. But we just want anything to keep flying, to keep doing all the different things that we're addicted to that fossil fuels provide. And yet people without fossil fuels live happy, healthy. Their longevity is, is like ours, more equal more prosperous in terms of, I had this great blog post a little while ago. I I love this one. If we're so wealthy, why do we keep stealing land from people who have nothing? We're totally needy. They're not. This is from watching a documentary of the Hadza, this uh, hunting gathering community in modern day Tanzania. And they've been living that way as best we can tell for at least 50,000 years. There's this map on, on the documentary and it shows my hands are far apart. Hadza territory in like 1900. I forget the exact numbers. And then in 1940, and it's like half that. And then in 1990, and it's like a tenth of that. And like 2010, it's like barely visible on the map. And that's all being taken by us. There are some pastoralists, other like the Maasai, I think, that bring in their cows to and, and plant stuff. It shrinks their territory because they don't have a, 
as far as I know, and I'm not an anthropologist, their culture doesn't have land ownership as part of it. And so when someone comes in and plants something or brings cattle through and, and grazes, they're like, well, it's everyone's land. It's not like I can stop you. Next thing you know, they're out of that territory. But you know, the big thing is the <clears> missionaries <throat> and the schools that we send in to teach them, they've been living happily for 50,000 years. Our culture, if we just start with agriculture, it was 10,000 years ago. So a small fraction of that time. But if we pick industrial revolution, that's a couple hundred years ago. We should be learning from them. We should have a bit more humility. Right, the wrong teachers. I felt like in the, in the context of the example of a population of people who are otherwise living incredibly prosperously, the fact that our society by its design, which I would almost, I, I think the, the term that sometimes gets used around here is like, this is a cancerous society. This is a virus that tries to just infect as much of it as it possibly can from the biomedical brain in my background. I will say like, I'm almost envisioning the cells, uh, the cell walls just being penetrated and a virus is being injected to them. And that's causing those cells to turn into whatever the virus would like it to become, whatever it would like it to produce at the behest of the cell's health and wellness to the same extent of the plaguing the land and taking it over. It's a similar respect of just a colony of something that's just being invaded by something else that's decided to operate its lifestyle this way from a, how this thing sustains and to the point around this sustainable life, we're trying to say from within this society, the society itself is unsustainable it's unhealthy. It's sick. It's honestly, it's painful from an experience. We're all infected, if you will, with this virus of thinking uh, of life. Of this is how our lifestyle is supposed to be, or this is what makes us happy. This is sort of where I guess the, the existential crisis comes in for a lot of people. Um, even I myself have come through this. And this is where the entrepreneur in me sees the two paths of like, I either stay willfully ignorant and focus and, and try to make the most of my life in this sick society, or I try to do something about it, perhaps at the cost of my initial goal. That's something to, again, going to need to take time to dive more into that. Recently, my family itself, and when we moved to the States, my father had always told me ever since I guess I could fathom awareness, he said, this country is sick the way we're going about things. I mean, he, he alluded to the, to the greater world as well, but we in America understand this problem all too well. We don't know what to do about it. We yeah. like collectively there's the, the, the society is so sick. How do we even begin to heal? The virus cancer analogy, I think is, yeah, I tend to prefer the cancer one because cancer Apparently, we, we're developing cancer cells all the time, but we're also, under, we're also protecting ourselves against it all the time. So it's, it's within us, but we're also stopping it. That's like a macro picture of how this growth is happening. And I think you're right. People look to, if they want to help the Hadza, they often look to what can we do in Tanzania to protect their land. But as you point out, we're the ones who are doing the invading. It's us we're not stopping ourselves. We are jettisoning the ability to stop 
ourselves. And it's in us. People ask, why do you live in New York if you love nature so much? I love humanity. This is where the decisions are made. This is where the boardrooms are. This is where the choices are made to squash, to override our defenses, to make fentanyl where we used to have heroin, to make heroin where we used to have opium, where we have opium where we used to have poppy seeds, to just refine and refine and refine and get past all these defenses because profitable. I've often said the, the difference between the environment of our ancestors, of a verdant, I mean, just back 100 years maybe, much more verdant and green. The difference between that and now is the physical manifestation of our values uh, made manifest through our behavior. Our values are being, I can't say distorted. It's just really plucking on one string to go for the craving. It works really well. The protection against what we're doing is, is within us or the problem is within us. There's a motivation within us that's being amplified that we, we've learned to amplify very well. Someone who sells heroin to a 10-year-old, we're pretty clear there's something wrong with that. I don't know how much more defense an adult has against a similar mechanism that's delivered through gambling or through social media or through the guise of seeing the world, but is really the same thing delivered through airplanes and cruise ships or through doof, social media. Anyway, so this answers your question of what, 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 ha what happened over the past couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I, but to your point, right? Like, would all of this thought be available in its abundance if you had ultimately endeavored to just sit back and watch some TV or, or engage in some content while you ate? Yeah, it's so insidious. It, it's so silky smooth. Anyway, what's the next question on the list of, there's four questions to ask me. Thank you, Josh. What, Josh, what was the emotional experience behind this ultimately? So a lot of what I talked about was the emotions that I felt. Part of it was at the beginning. So I'm, I'm going to talk about, there's the emotions that I felt in the moment, but now I want to go the, the envelope around that was that at the beginning, I thought this is going to be easy. You know, a, an interesting experience. I, I anticipated discovery of a rediscovery of that euphoria of feeling like, oh, good. Like now that, that distraction has gone, so I anticipated kind of joyful discovery, but then when I felt that insidiousness and that, that, that the feeling addicted, then it was not depression, helplessness for sure, not anger or rage, but something of like, they're doing this to me. Like they know what they're doing. Betrayal, something like that. And then curiosity, what's going on? And then also a desire to share because I felt like this is, this is something I don't think I'm unique here. I don't think I'm unique in discovering this effect. I don't think I'm unique in, in what I've felt. It's just, it happens to be particularly poignant right now, but I think not many people want to talk about it in this context. I think people are happy to talk about it for AA and Narcotics Anonymous and all the, like, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people want to talk about it there and I hope they do because I hope it helps people. But in terms of our whole society and also examining, I think there's like curiosity and determination because I'm confident that there's a lot of people who are saying that they're doing good and they know what they're doing. I think a lot of people want to be released from this, liberated, but will throw a tantrum, resist like hell with all they've got to face it. Then I was like, I really want to share this with you to explore. Like, so the curiosity and discovery 
of exploring myself and learning more about myself and wonder at how these, all these little things to go be more in touch with nature every single time. It's a great experience. I can't believe people are like, they'd rather this life, what this effect that I'm talking about leads us to prefer to get takeout to cooking some vegetables and saying that takeout tastes better or is easier or cheaper when it's not. That's even with the subsidies, take away the subsidies, it would get even stronger, the effect of, of it being, you know, we subsidize corn and soy and all that stuff. In New York City, now we've given away all this land to the takeout restaurants, just free real estate for all these sheds I'm sure people know about. I think people want out. I think people would, I think we're spending less time with family, but we get this jolt of, a hit of when we choose, when we get on the flight to go visit them, we get less overall joy in life, joy being a stand in for all the, all the emotions we get from spending time with family, but we're getting less, but it's all delivered in one hit. So we feel that briefly and substitute that for actually a life that we want to live. So wanted to share that, but then also feeling like, how am I going to get this one across? Because no one's going to, oh, I know what it's like to be addicted. No, you don't. Your point is there are so many ways to kind of identify. I'm trying to sort of look at like, what's the argumentatives approach to this? Like saying it's not extreme enough, like fentanyl. It's not pervasive. I mean, granted your point about the teenager who kills themselves over, over the social media experience that they're undergoing, like that's not a drug. And yet it has a similar, if not worse impact, just due to the fact that it's way more available. Yeah. I was thinking of asking people, putting a post out on my blog saying, I want to get addicted to coffee. I was trying to think of like, what can I get addicted to <laughs> that people yeah. would be like, oh, that's serious if you got off that. So I was like, what, I got to drink like five cups a day for a year to stop and, and describe the effect? Because I think people take that one pretty seriously. Right. What is your, what is your fit to fat to fit here? Yeah, because I'm not going to do it with doof. And I'm not going to do it with some illegal something. Uh, I'm not going to do it with alcohol. It's too caloric. I, I don't want to make myself unhealthy. So caffeine could do it, but I don't want to, it, it seems like, too contrived. I don't know if it'll get the point across. Yeah. I so mean, I think, I'm not going to go plus coffee, coffee in itself is a very unique. Yes. There's the caffeine addiction, mm-hmm. but there's some really interesting studies going around how caffeine is great for some people with a certain genetic profile and caffeine is terrible for others. There'll be people who will literally argue with you. Like it's good to drink coffee. Oh, it's not good to drink coffee. So we get into this argumentation well, around like, good what is not- health. Whether it's good or not, you can still be addictive. The question is whether it's addictive or not. Well, can you be addicted to healthy things? Is addiction an unhealthy thing even for healthy things? This is the all things in moderation press like concept. If I want to stop and I can't, well, this is why I don't want to do it because it's, it seems contrived. Maybe people would feel like, oh, you're not really addicted. You're, I think that they wouldn't really get it across. Like if I, if I said, look, I drank five cups of coffee a day for a year. Now, do you believe me? I'm sure... Some would say, yeah, but I, I, I don't think it would, like, that's not going to win any. To your point, I don't know what substance it would take to get people to be, oh, okay, I can empathize with you because you're willing to explore the, the subject this way. Yeah. So I, I, I just have to, how do I, so this is my, talking to you is my first public sharing of this experience, which I guess I'll have to edit and, and keep getting until it works and, and share with people. Look, I know that how I can communicate to people. Yes, I know the feeling of 
addiction. And I bet if I say the feelings and the words that I was saying to myself, actually, the next step, I guess, would be to talk to people who are addicted or have come out of addiction and see if, if they would agree that it's a quantitative but not qualitative difference between what their experience and mine. Because I'm definitely not, you know, I wasn't like selling my furniture to go on social media. Maybe people listening to this and saying, Josh thinks he's found something out, but he, he hasn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or maybe people saying, oh, wow, he really picked out the nuance of it there. Yeah, I think there is a bit in earlier on that you hit the nail on the head with. I'm going to, I'm going to take that little clip out and see if I, if I can't share that at the very least. Josh, I'm going to have to run, Okay, but I know the last question that I, once I did catch my notes was to ask you about your relationships, which I think you captured a little bit of it. Thank you for sharing this with me personally. I'm really excited to share this with others myself, but at the same time, also really excited to see how you end up sharing this with others. I, I know I was, I was training you and it was just, it was a bigger effect than I expected and, and um, not bigger, but more interesting. I think you caught something you, you, you found to your point, you found something very subtle and just underneath the surface and yet huge. We'll see. You found the layer between the water basically. And you just said, this is terrible. What is this film here that I've just un- uncovered? I don't know. It just literally feels like you've, you've picked out the plastic film that's hidden just underneath the water surface. We've all been diving through it and going like, yeah, this is not a big issue. No, this is suffocating. Yeah. So now the next time we, we, we record, it'll be, or next time we meet, it'll be to record for your, the, the, the debut episode of your podcast. Do you have a second to share which direction you're going in or do you have to run? I do have to run, okay. but we'll definitely be excited to reveal that. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.